Where is the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? They have passed like rain on the mountains, like wind in the meadow. The days have gone down in the west, behind the hills, into shadow. This is my brother, my captain, my podcast. How did it come to this? Frodo Baggins is my name, and this is Samwise Gamgee. Your bodyguard? is Gardner. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, now known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is Window on the West, Part 1, as Frodo and Sam meet their Gondorian captors and Gollum goes fishing. This will be a two-part episode. The corresponding book chapters are worth focusing on in detail, so we will punt the Token Tolkien book section into its very own podcast episode next time out. Our spoiler warning... While The Ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies have not. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even The Hobbit films. Oh god, I probably need to add The Rings of Power to the spoiler warning too. Oh no. So, on this podcast, you may have heard us complain about something called Great Man Theory. Great man theory is kind of one of these pejoratives that people on the left have thrown about with some reckless abandon for, I don't know, probably since 1968 at volume. But it's not really something that a lot of people are familiar with. And for good reason, it's kind of a niche historiographical term. But I think it's really important that when we are slurring people, we should use exactly precise slurs <laughs> and so we we here at my brother my captain my podcast want to enable you to be especially precise and especially biting with the ways that you insult people so just to head off this episode we're going to chat about great man theory and its relationship to fiction so next time you hear us bemoaning certain narrative choices let's say you will understand exactly what we mean and why we're cranky about it So great man theory is something that has more or less defined history and the study of history pretty much since history as a discipline has been a thing, which is to say thousands of years. But it's not really until the 1840s and thanks to a Scottish historian named Thomas Carlyle that we really actually start to get a defined name and set of practices for it. Before we get into this Thomas Carlyle fella and into the mechanics of the thing that he inadvertently defined, I think it's really important to kind of set the scene by going back uh, a good thousand years or so. More than a thousand years, I just can't do math, which is why I'm a historian. Don't say that to the economics (laughs) historians, they will skin you. So back in the day, back in the day, meaning the days of Aristotle and Plato and Democritus and Demosthenes and I don't know, all those other guys, I'm just spitballing words here. There was this element of classical philosophy called teleology. Teleology posits that all things have a reason for being, which is called the telos, and that reason for being explains why that thing does or is. It's a little archaic, but if you think of the concept of evolution, where benches have the beaks they do because they need to live, and because to live they need to eat, and to eat they need to pull seeds out of tiny little holes in trees, then you'll get a bit of the point of what teleology is. There are many applications for teleology in uh, history and historiography, which is the study of history. Um, and Immanuel Kant, uh, that is Kant, not Kant, although maybe interchangeable, <laughs> who knows, you make that call, uh, is one of the first sort of critical uh, philosophers who helps to bring uh, the, the concept of teleology into uh, the element of, of reasoning and judgment. Um, uh, and this is in the 18th century. Um, 
It's not really until the kind of later part of the 18th century, the early part of the 19th century, and then particularly towards the kind of height of the British Empire at the later end of the 19th century that we really start to get well-defined theories of history and well-defined and competing theories of history. If you think, for example, of like Whiggish history, which argues that the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice, in which humanity is always moving forwards towards a better, more just and more moral end, you'll start to really see how there's an application of the teleos or teleology to history. But if you point out that actually the world now is vastly more dog shit than it was 40 years ago, then you undermine that Whiggish argument that the world is always moving towards a more just end, which raises the question, what causes the world to change? What is the engine powering the machine of history? There are lots of theories. For Marxists, it's the dialectical process of class antagonism and class war. For liberals, it's whatever dumb shit they saw on Instagram last. But for <laughs> some people, bafflingly, it's great men. Which is how we get back to Thomas Carlyle. In 1840, Thomas Carlyle attempted to answer this question of what causes history to exist by saying, the soul of the whole world's history may be justly considered the history of great men. Fucking crazy. Fucking crazy. Almost not worth dealing with. But unfortunately, this has massive ramifications that we're still dealing with today. So we do have to give it some time. Great man theory postulates that history progresses as a product of the acts, deeds, and desires of men who are better, smarter, faster, stronger than the rest of us. It is those men in particular who drag the rest of us drooling morons forward into the future. It is not a collective effort. It is an individual one. I should also note that while great man theory is effectively pervasive throughout history, the rapid onset of hyper-individualism, social alienation, and community breakdown since the end of World War II has hastened and magnified its influence. Not only can we now not imagine a history which is not told through figures, we also can't imagine fiction without that same guiding principle either. And I think this rapid change really is evident in the change from the Lord of the Rings books to film. We don't need to pretend that the Lord of the Rings books were some sort of communitarian success, a democratic manifesto for a proto-socialist age, but they were markedly less obsessed with the specific uniqueness of any one individual than the Lord of the Rings films are. Tolkien goes out of his way to point out that his protagonist, Frodo, is neither exceedingly clever nor exceedingly stupid, neither exceedingly strong nor exceedingly weak. It is his utter ordinariness that makes him the perfect person to carry the ring to Mordor. But even when Tolkien does have great men, they are rather more nuanced than the hand-wavy accusations of Christhood make them out to be. Aragorn, for example, is a shadow of a shadow, skilled and valiant, yes, but far from perfect. He flounders in his conversations with others, from Barleyman Butterbur to Eowyn, he struggles with diplomacy and human connection. Aragorn himself is relegated to being, at best, only a, an echo of the Gondor that was, and in his marriage to Arwen, a woman who will never be freed of the shadow of her grandmother's legend, we see the bitter personal tragedy of that. Gandalf, of course, makes plenty of mistakes, and though he's a wheeler and dealer par excellence, even he can't really do it alone. But look instead at the Lord of the Rings films, where Gandalf's mistakes aren't really mistakes, they're just general faults of the unlearned world writ large. Or... Aragorn, whose majesty and superiority to all men is apparently possible only because the men of Gondor and Arnor are so weak. Sometimes, when you talk about Faramir with people, they'll say, well, 
If Faramir was so good, why couldn't he just be king? To that, I asked the question, if Gondor is truly as awful as it seems in the movies, why would Aragorn want to be king at all? And of course, all of this petty bitching just gets back to the key question. Can there really only be one extremely good dude in a story for a story to work? Yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> Done. Uh, solved. <laughs> n- yeah, no, uh, I don't really have uh, anything to like substantively add to that. I think the funny thing is, again, showing my age here, is that the Lord of the Rings, when the movies came out, did kind of stick out as being, I wouldn't call it communitarian, but like more collective than most stories and blockbusters that were happening at the time. Um, And I guess maybe we've kind of moved into this kind of ensemble storytelling because also like the Fast and the Furious or the Avengers, you know, are groups of people. But it always all still comes down to like one guy, right? It's Aragorn or Tony Stark or... The Dom Toretto, I think, is uh, Vin Diesel's name <laughs> in uh, the uh, uh, Fast and the Furious movie. So it's like this movie did kind of stick out because kind of before the Lord of the Rings movies, I'm thinking of like the big blockbuster movies were like Die Hard, where John McClane was one man against the world mm-hmm. or Arnold Schwarzenegger was one man against the world. Um, and I, I mean, there's always supporting characters and stuff. But the Lord of the Rings films, again, at the time, I don't think anything you said is wrong. It did feel like, well, Aragorn's the hero, but Sam is also the hero. Mm -hmm. And then Pippin and Merry are also kind of heroes. But then Gandalf is like the only people I feel like aren't really heroes are like Legolas and Gimli. And honestly, Frodo (laughs) would be third because Frodo doesn't do much. Um, So but no, I think that's right. And I think it's uh, worth like understanding that. This isn't by mistake. Like, I don't think Peter Jackson said, I am going to fuck off with some kind of like dialectal collectivism in his <laughs> telling of Lord of the Rings. Now I'm going to do something that's great man theory affirming. But I think this is just, it's kind of like how post war or post industrial capitalist countries, like, this is like wrote for the fiction we write. We write narrative fiction to support ideas that are like great man. Uh, rugged individualism um, that you can be the hero of the story and we gear away from things that might be like deemed as quote unquote communist and I just mean that in the sense Mm -hmm. that it's about collective victory or collective winning Um, which you know it just it's how everything is in this fucking country and I'm sure you can speak to the you know European slash Scottish slash British experience Mm -hmm. better but everything in America from the media to the way you know we learn history in school to all the fiction we are taught is almost exclusively like look at these great men moving worlds and that is how things get done Mm -hmm. Um, it is never really um, you know a group of people struggle together to overcome yeah uh, or whatever the thing is and I think it's deliberate I think that's the key thing maybe one of the key theses of our podcast as a whole is that everything that there is has ideology behind mm-hmm. it I know the popular refrain is that everything is political mm-hmm. um, which you know is correct but also I think is not focused enough mm-hmm. of a point like we have to point out that everything has ideology behind it and whether intentional or not it's trying to reinforce that kind of ideology um, and that's why it's very interesting with these lord of the rings films which sit at that quote-unquote end of history like francis fukuyama's nothing's ever going to change ever again because we figured everything out um, and it was just kind of like these great men are you know how the world changes and i think the film takes a very much a stance in 
that aligns with that with Aragorn because it's clearly a lot of the plot is how do we get this dude on the throne to fix all the things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you know what? I think the thing that's also really interesting is is because um so so I, like I think as kind of great man theory uh relates to to kind of fiction like it is as much about like oh how like how do you handle the characters as it is like what are the ways in which you can build tension and conflict in a story and 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 J.R.R. Tolkien had um uh, it was called the New Shadow it was uh, an attempted sequel uh, to the Lord of the Rings featuring Eldarion who's Aragorn's son uh, some two hundred three hundred years into the future and uh, uh you know uh, Eldarion's kind of struggle as a a young king to both you know, fill his father's shoes, but also kind of uh, fight back against this ever lingering sort of darkness that is represented by Morgoth because Sauron is defeated, but Morgoth himself is not. And and the world is kind of waiting that, that final judgment, final battle, that judgment day with Morgoth. And and Tolkien had like abandoned the draft after a couple of pages. And, and when commenting on why that was, he basically said, it, it, it's a bit fucking grim, isn't it? And there's not really anything else to say about it. Um, and and kind of the first couple times I read that, I kind of accepted that at face value as like, yeah, good point. Fair enough. Uh, like, yeah, uh, there really is nothing to say that the history of this world has ended and uh, there's no real kind of conflict there that isn't just sort of uh, reiterating the conflicts that have already been there. Um, but then I read something from Ursula K. Le Guin, I think it was, where she was basically talking about how the way that we talk about like narrative conflict or the way that we talk about the purpose of a novel or a story generally um isn't the ideal way of handling it because it it, it sort of preferences or, or privileges this idea of like direct clash uh, of of figures of technology of man versus technology man versus nature man versus man um and mm-hmm. and that kind of way of telling a story that is entirely predicated on this direct conflict isn't necessarily the only way of telling a story and that there is a possibility of telling a story that that isn't so conflict oriented um and now I I feel like about what I'm about to say is going to undermine what I what I literally just said there, but like <laughs> the TV show Andor, uh, and we're recording this before the finale, so if something happens in the finale that makes me sound like a dipshit, I'm not sorry. Um, but um, Andor is really interesting because there are these direct conflicts, but there are never direct conflicts, or at least there have not been so far direct conflicts between the main antagonist and the main protagonist of the series uh, or you might even argue you can't really point a finger to who the main protagonist and the main antagonist are because the real kind of movers and shakers are are so diffuse in and who they are as characters um that like you know cash and andor the titular character of andor hasn't really been relevant as a player for the vast majority of this season and the main antagonists are kind of all tripping over their dicks half the time and haven't really established themselves and so the, the reason why I bring up Andor, right, because there are a lot of other sort of better and more, not more interesting, but better kind of arguments for this non-traditional approach to conflict and narrative is because Andor, I think, shows that it is possible to do um, these kind of not non-traditional, but slightly, slightly changed approaches to conflict and tension and characterization with these kind of big iconic uh, IPs, I guess. Um, and, and, and something like... Um, and or where it's not like you've got, you know, your Aragorns and your Gandalfs against your Saurons and your Saurmans, but you've got all of these these kind of equally um, 
capable and incapable characters who aren't actually going at one another, but the this the the kind of political and social spheres in which they inhabit and the, the political and social goals to which they are working are necessarily in conflict with one another. And so as much as you see like the the Deidre Maros um working towards one goal and feel, you know, this kind of weird um twinge of almost empathy. Like you want this person that you're watching to succeed, even though what she's going to succeed at is fucked up. At the same time that you see the Cashins and the Luthans and the Kleas and 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 the Vels and the Sintas um, and want them. And and the conflict is not necessarily in the characters. Um, the conflict, dear readers, is in ourselves. Um, and I think that's one of these really interesting things that I always get thinking about when when we get to and and talk about things like Athelion and, and the, the the sort of Faramir episodes of The Lord of the Rings and books and the movies is like, why does one character necessarily have to be changed in who they are as a character to um, heighten the the sort of nobility of another character, is there not kind of a different way of thinking about conflict and narrative? Yeah, no, and I think, like you say, Andor is the best one where it's not putting anyone down or doing, like, the Marvel or other bad Star Wars show thing of, like, necessarily, like, regressing characters just to kind of build them back up again. Um, it is all just completely kind of organic and driven by... Uh, I don't know what, but I agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> That's basically what I'm getting at, um, is that it's definitely not going every point where Andor could have fallen into something tropey or something where it's like, well, this is how every other drama show or prestige drama or every other IP show works. Um, that's, you know, Andor has kind of zagged where the other shows would zig. Um, and this is also where I kind of get sad about kind of the like botched landing of the end of Game of Thrones, mm. um, because it was very much working along those lines about peoples within systems. Most of them are not magically powered, even though all of them have a little magic in their storyline. And like the two quote unquote great men of the story, I would say Jon Snow and Daenerys Targaryen. Uh, one ends up being like just a giant war criminal <laughs> and the other one just says, fuck this, I'm going to leave and not do anything, mm. which I think could be powerful if they had, you know, actually built the right steps to get there. Um, as it is, it does kind of like lay out a good version of A Song of Ice and Fire that I can kind of now picture in my head since I probably won't get the actual thing. <laughs> but like, like those are the kind of things where it's like when they do have kind of great men in these stories, or even how you were talking about Gandalf and Aragorn in the books, mm. um, it really took me working with you to kind of realize how not just like superficially good the characters are mm. as related to their movie versions, because the movies very much just want to accept, want you to accept if Aragorn or Gandalf does or says something, that's right. Like, not only is that like correct, but it's also probably morally good. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and, you know, it works fine for the movies. I'm not trying to criticize, you know, well, I am trying to criticize the movies, <laughs> but I'm saying they're still successful despite that. Yeah. Um, but it is a lot different than the Aragorn of the books where it's like, okay, this guy's a little fucking weirdo. Uh, you know, I can still kind of get behind him as the figurehead of this general movement, but it's not like I look at this guy's like, dude, let's go like grab beers in uh, like Rivendell together or wherever they would grab beers. Uh, I guess Bree would be a better yeah. choice for that. <laughs> Oh, I guess Brie is beer with the R just kind of moved two letters behind. Yes. Anyways, <laughs> um, and, and like Gandalf seems a lot more unsure. I think the movies, they kind of made Gandalf the Grey very unsure about stuff. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as he came back as Gandalf the White, he was basically like, I know everything that's going to happen ever. So just listen to me kind of thing. Yep. Um, 
And, you know, they, they do try to complicate it. There's that scene at the beginning of Return of the King where they're dancing in Medusel, and Gandalf's like, you know, I don't know if Frodo's succeeding. And Aragorn, of course, has to be. Aragorn mm-hmm. tells him, it's like, what does your heart tell you kind of yeah. thing. So it's like the only people that can pick up the great men are the other great men. Yep. Um, it, there is not like a real scene where, say, Eowyn picks up Aragorn or anything mm-hmm. like that. In fact, it's almost always flowing the opposite way. The the great men are picking up all the other characters. Yes. Um, which I think is partially why I really like, um, you know, like the Frodo and Sam stuff and the Merry and Pippin stuff is because they don't have necessarily Gandalf or Aragorn in them to be the people that pick them mm-hmm. up. Um, they kind of have to do it themselves or together, um, however you want to phrase it. Yeah, because I think there's also something kind of interesting as well in like the 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 way that Aragorn functions as well. And we talked about this God ages ago, I think like literally in the first episode we did where Aragorn featured where like. Aragorn in the movies represents this really weird tension between um, having to, by virtue of adapting a book, uh, having to write about kings in an age that is ostensibly democratic. But I think like in a lot of ways, great man theory um, in itself is also kind of a, a, an attempt to to reconcile with this, uh, to reconcile these tensions. And I think in a way that fundamentally isn't 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 workable, um, that the contradictions are too great to be to be um, overcome. But like, you know, uh, the liberal revolutions of the late 18th century, early 19th century, depending on who you ask, they they ostensibly <laughs> overthrew monarchs and ostensibly, you know, Louis was killed. Louis Cafe was killed um, and the kings were gone. And ostensibly, the Americans got rid of King George III and put a different George, uh, not on a throne, on a, a normal looking chair. Um, but But there was still this failure to really deal with the kind of lingering effect of of uh, a, a feudalism of monarchy um, and of monarchical and feudalistic thinking. Um, and so if you look at like the the way I think the American presidency is a particularly good example of this, because like uh, the American presidency is not a kingship. Um, it is certainly not a kingship. But but the way in which Americans talk about and deal with their presidents is in a way that is obviously and patently monarchical. Um, and and so there is this attempt to try and reconcile um, the this need to have or a desire to have a sort of divinely ordained king with the fact that you elect them um, through ostensibly democratic means. And, and this is like you know how we end up dealing with the person the politics of personality in in Western liberal democracies instead of the politics of ideology um, is because you know if Hillary Clinton is going to run for president again, Hillary Clinton needs to be morally unimpeachable um, and she needs to be the best and most fun and perfect perfect person and her touch will literally heal you of whatever ails you um, because there's nothing ideological and there's nothing truly democratic to to, to sort of back this stuff up. Um, and and we basically just have substituted like uh, high powered execs, executives for um, for for kings. And you see that, I think, a lot in the way that that uh, the Peter Jackson films handle Aragorn, which is like they're trying to justify the kind of uncomfiness of essentially adapting um, pro-monarch, like monarchist propaganda with, oh, but we're enlightened liberal Democrats and we don't go in for all that monarchy shit. So instead of it just being like he's he's earned it by birthright, um, by the fact that he is the heir to a sealder, it's the line that, that Arwen says, 
you are a Sealder's heir, not a Sealder himself, which is really meant to be kind of reconciling this thing of you are your own man. And, and, and um, as your own man, you are this perfect man um, who is, who is good and wise and strong and courageous in all ways. Um, and that is what means that you should be an absolute monarch. And it's not the birth, <laughs> like the bloodline or the birth. And that, that kind of conflict is really the kind of whole theory of great man, uh, great man theory. It's the whole kind of undergirding logic of great man theory as well. And it, it is really fundamentally this kind of failure to deal with the fact that like we're all kind of monarchy cucks in a world in which we're pretending to be democrats The rangers of Athelion weigh their military options. News has reached them of Saruman's advances on Rohan and Theoden's flight to Helm's Deep. But Gondor must focus eastward, as Sothrons and Easterlings have been entering Mordor en masse. Asgiliath is still commanding the river for now, but if it's attacked, defeat is certain. Well, defeat may be certain regardless, as war has come to men on both fronts. Sam and Frodo's blindfolds are removed, they find themselves in a cave behind a waterfall with the men of Gondor scurrying about. They are approached by the captain and interrogated on their true purpose. Some of the men are saying they are CIA or MI6, (laughs) but Frodo says nay, they are but two civilians. (laughs) Only two? What third? There never was a third. This gangle creature? Where did you get that preposterous hypothesis? We set out from Rivendell with seven companions. One we lost in Moria. Two were my kin. A dwarf there was also, and an elf. And two men. Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and Boromir of Gondor. You're a friend of Boromir? Yes. For my part. The name Boromir jolts the captain. Hey, halflings, did you know he's dead? And we have no idea how. Maybe since you guys went backpacking for a semester, you can tell me. <laughs> because I'm Boromir's Broomir, Faramir. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Faramir thinks on things for a while. See, they're adapting his book character. He's thinking. <laughs> One of his men interrupts him, though, and Faramir in turn interrupts Frodo. Come with me, he says, leading Frodo to the Forbidden Pool. Below, he points to Gollum in the waters, the absolutely not third member of Frodo's party. Dipping in the pool, being forbidden and all, comes under pain of death. Faramir's men knock their arrows as Gollum sings the song of his people. We got an Easter egg to this in The Rings of Power when Poppy sings about fish. God, I hate that show. Anyway, Frodo tells Faramir to hold. Okay, I lied. He's our third. Hell, he's our guide. Let me go to my dog. I'll call him back. Gollum, more cat than dog, 
get suspicious when Frodo emerges out of nowhere to say they must leave now in the dead of night. Trust me, bro, he says in the words of Tolkien. Schmeagle, carrying a fish in his mouth knowing I was going to do a pet analogy, follows cautiously, but suddenly the rangers of Gondor are on him, tying and bagginsing him, bagging him. (laughs) Frodo protests for gentle treatment, but that doesn't assuage Gollum's feelings of betrayal. Faramir watches coolly from his perch up high. Knowing that enhanced interrogation was in vogue in 2002, Faramir sharply questions Gollum on the Hobbit's mission. Who are they? Where are they going? And why? But the conversation that matters occurs between Gollum and Schmeagol. Having gathered the necessary intel, Agent Faramir goes back to the Hobbits, sword in hand. David Wenham doesn't get a lot of memorable lines in these films as Faramir, so let's drop in his whole spiel here to show his quality. So, this is the answer to all the riddles. Here in the wild I have you. Two halflings and a host of men at my call. ring of power within my grasp. Chance for Faramir, Captain of Gondor, to show his quality. Frodo is ensorcelled briefly by the ring, igniting defiance in him as he pushes away Faramir's blade. Sam comes to his master's defense, but Damrod, our favorite character in the world, Damrod, <laughs> interrupts the proceedings. Askiliath is under attack. Faramir's men can't tarry here any longer. The ring will go to Gondor. Let's situate ourselves geographically, well, as best we can, as we are led here blindfolded, the window on the west, or Henneth Anun. 
It is a hidden military outpost along one of the tributaries flowing into the Anduin, due northeast of Kair Andros. The rangers of Gondor kept this location hidden, lest the enemy learns of the secret refuge. Even men of Rohan were not afforded their eyes here. Yeah, and, and the secrecy, I think, is a really key component to understanding the state that Gondor's in right now. And for most of J.R.R. Tolkien's life, um, war had a very clear code of honor, and secret or guerrilla warfare was not part of it. Secrecy meant like you had something to hide, or you were weak, or usually both. So that the Gondorim have had to have a hidden military base within their own kingdom is a massive cell phone. And it's also a hugely important sign of how decrepit and de- decayed their civilization is. And I'm never just going to get over the fact that for hundreds of years, men just lined up in a straight line and fired guns at each yeah. other. That's just fucking horrifying. never going to track with my brain. <laughs> A waterfall in the cliff face was likely diverted to create the cave inside, with the waterfall flowing over an opening, creating a window-like aesthetic. We can see a waterfall backgrounded in many of the scenes here, most prominently when Faramir is first questioning Frodo and Sam. Yeah, so so the um so Hanathan and the, the hideout was built by the stewards. Um and and this is also actually kind of interesting because it's worth worth thinking about the architectural differences between the things that the stewards built and the things that the kings built. Like think, for example, of Minas Tirith, which has the big beautiful ship's prow for the proud ship kings of Gondor. Fuck, Numenor. Try saying that ten times quicker. <laughs> um and there, water and stone alike are like mastered. Um and they're all mastered in pursuit of the celebration and glorification of men. But here in Athelion, in the house that the stewards wrought, stone may have been mastered, but Water doesn't actually serve the glorification of men. It's not a fountain. It's a waterfall, and it's there to obfuscate the presence of men. The other notable feature is the Forbidden Pool, the basin at the bottom of the falls to which all are denied entry. But apparently it has good fish. (laughs) Okay, here's going to be me getting to my crackpot conspiracy theorist, right? So... In Tolkien, right? When when you get a fact from from Tolkien and Tolkien's writing, you get a fact uh, reiterated like three or four times, and that's how you know it's a fact. Um, and and you may like get different glosses from different sources on these facts. You know, one person may say uh, this thing is true in Gondolin, uh, and another person may say this thing is true in Gondolin. Uh, Prens derogatory, um, and you know it's a fact because both people agree on the fundamentals of this thing is true in Gondolin. But it's up to you to decide whether that's a fact or derogatory. Um. This is interesting. The, the Forbidden Pool as, as a Forbidden Pool is kind of a quirk. It's an, it's an anomaly in some ways because the only person we hear that it's forbidden from is Faramir. And that's only when he's trying to suss out Gollum's relationship to Frodo and Sam. So, so here's my tinfoil crackpot conspiracy theorist. I think the pool is just a pool. <laughs> I think Faramir is just bullshitting. Like, why would the stewards in Minas Tirith, 100 miles away, need to make one specific pool illegal when all of Athelion itself is a no-go zone that carries a death penalty? Are they going to stack death penalties in their secret and unrecorded trials? Or is it just that Faramir is trying to scare the shit out of Frodo and get him to talk quicker? Oh, man, that, that is actually a really good observation. Um, if I had to redo the Two Towers Extended Edition, like the minute they take Gollum captive after this little scene, there would just be one of Faramir's men that walks to the edge and just takes a piss into the <laughs> Forbidden Pool. Like, whatever, no one really cares. <laughs> um, 
Or it's like that um, in that Lemon of Troy episode of The Simpsons where Bart and his team are like reluctant to cross the line into Shelbyville. <laughs> but then in the background, you see Lisa and Janie just like running across it back and forth. Like, what? <laughs> yes, that's exactly the right vibe. <laughs> Hennef Anun was created in the Third Age 2901 as part of a plan to create several outposts as the people of Athelion left in the growing presence of Mordor. Yeah, uh, so eventually at some point I will pour my heart out into the putting together a kind of uh, alternate history of Athelion from the bear scraps that, that we have uh, left throughout the text. But today is not that day. Uh, Aragorn voicing it. Today is not that day. <laughs> uh, in a weirdly fake Irish thing. Vigo, what the fuck was up with you that day? Anyways, um, so Hennath Annan, uh, as a name, uh, is Cinder and it means window on the west. But literally, it actually means way of seeing the west or way of seeing the sunset. And these have kind of two interesting divergent meanings. And um, one is interesting because West, the West is where Valinor is. That's why the men and the elves like always make these references towards the West going West. I realize this is something that was like kind of interesting and maybe slightly hidden. Um, not super hidden, but slightly hidden before the Rings of Power came out. And then the Rings of Power came out <laughs> and beat subtlety to death with a hammer. Uh, so now we all know what the fuck the West is. Um, so in some ways, you know, the West uh, in Window on the West is the Rangers having to look through a veil of water and light to see the West, the promised land. That's very beautiful. That's very interesting. It's a source of hope. Look at Athelion, the farthest outpost on the front lines. And and these guys who are fighting the worst war, uh, the worst battle of the worst war are getting to look back towards the promised land through this beautiful rainbow fountain. Nice. The alternate meaning is... Uh, uh, sunset and 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 this one is really interesting because they're looking at this kind of muddled yet beautiful sunset and there's kind of this aching yearning sadness because the sunset means the end of the day the end of a civilization and in some ways that is a really sad uh, but sad but nonetheless interesting reflection of gondor's own political situation and um, if you think of like the you know the, the old line um the sun never sets on the british empire well here in in athelion and in, in hadathanan um the rangers are having to watch the sunset on their own empire day in day out okay i'm afraid this might like veer into like hit bong safe thing uh, territory <laughs> yeah. but i also think about like the sinking of numenor through all this yes like having to look out westward onto the kingdom of gondor but through a veil of water <gasps> as like a reminder of what happened to numenor when they you know reached for a star and grasped too far oh, kind of thing oh i love that um, <laughs> So um, it must have been a good bong rip, I guess. But um, like, I I wouldn't have put that together. But when you speak of the window on the West as possibly referring to Valinor or as one of the interpretations of it, it just like my mind went to Numenor. And of course, I'm only thinking about this because the Rings of Power so wonderfully put all these (laughs) ideas into my mind. Uh, But no, I I think just like looking out onto Gondor, but through a veil of water that instantly makes me think of the sinking of Numenor for some reason. See that, that, that I love that because um, the, the way in which we have the sinking of Numenor related to us in the books, Aragorn may have a throwaway line about it. I can't remember possibly in the two towers. Um, And there may be some oblique references to it in, in on the Baradowns and fog on the Baradowns rather, and maybe in, in the house of Tom Bombadil in fellowship. Um, But, but the main way we, the, the story of uh, the sinking of Numenor is related to us is is by Faramir himself. And Faramir talks about the dream of the wave that he has. um, And he's had this persistent nightmare of, of the wave, the sinking of Numenor Um, and, and fascinating really. Sorry. I've got, I've got like, Ooh, I'm all excited. Uh, um, You know, it's, it's uh, Faramir is intensely related to the, 
the Rangers of Athelia, not just because it's his leader, but because he's got all of these sort of, uh, you know, he his family hails from Athelian, the, the stewards, the, the Huronianath, uh, were based in Emin Arnon, which is in the sort of central belt of Athelian. Uh, Faramir later becomes the prince of Athelian uh, and and returns to Emin Arnon. Um, he he has this sort of ancient tree, but also sort of like uh, the, this sort of half, you know, it, it's a he he like Athelian is kind of this world stuck waiting to be born um and and uh to have that connection between Athelian and Hanathan and 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 um and and the sinking of Numenor the Akalabath um I really love because although I think there's probably a fair argument to be made that that Faramir is a full-time captain of the Rangers based on some of the conversations he and Denethor have in the books um how haunting for him as someone who has that that dream, that nightmare of the the absolute eradication of his people, of his ancestors, to then have to live somewhere where there's always the sound of water. And, you know, in the books, it's described as this like ever present noise, almost deafening at points. And um, how like how horrifying to constantly be reminded of the eradication of your people as you are fighting the literal current eradication of your people. Oh, I love that. That's so exciting. Yay. <laughs> so for all that. This entire location is shortchanged in the films, <laughs> which makes it part and parcel with Faramir's adaptation yeah. overall. The outpost is not talked about in any meaningful sense, the name never spoken, in Common Tongue or Sindarin. As the film heightens the tension and danger from the men of Gondor, the films repurpose the blindfolding even in the books to create a sense of peril for the hobbits as they are led here. Yeah, oh... Uh, I'm, I was thinking about before we got on mic how we recorded one episode after Rings of Power before Andor happened, started, where I was like super up on the Peter Jackson films. And now we've had like 11 episodes of Andor and now I'm like, fuck. Um, so there goes all of the goodwill. Um, I think like the, the kind of key part, the key frustration for me on the whiffing of Hannah Thannon in particular is, is because like the point of Hannah Thannon and, and that, 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 that kind of checkpoint in, in the story, in the book is that there can still be like beauty and goodness in the perilous depths of war. And there's also a kind of later line, um, Sam and Frodo are chatting about the taste of strawberries. Remember the taste of strawberries, Frodo? And no, Sam, I can't remember the taste of food. Um, and, and, I think that's a lovely line. I think that's a really lovely interaction. I think it's very good. I think it's a great way of kind of setting the tone for who Sam is as a character and who Frodo is and what Frodo's burden is. But I feel like it's kind of a line that is lessened in some way by the fact that there hasn't really been any kind of natural beauty or wonder since they've left the Shire. So when Frodo says, no, I can't remember the taste of food anymore, we as the audience are kind of also like, yeah, I also can't remember the taste of food because it's been 12 fucking hours since we've seen anything nice and pretty. Um, and so Sam feels a bit kind of like a reckless idealist in some ways. But I think if you use this kind of checkpoint in Athelian and have this, you know, it's the Miyazaki thing of taking a moment to take a deep breath and watch mm -hmm, the grass, mm -hmm. grass move in the breeze. Um, then the, the, the kind of horror of Frodo being so far detached from all of the beauty and goodness in the world, I think hits harder. Yeah, no, I was just going to think um, the one way these movies try to get that sentiment in is in the extended edition of Return of the King, which, you know, I am anti-extended <laughs> edition, so I'm not really vouching for it here. Uh, but there is that moment when they are in Athelion um, and they come upon the statue yeah. or the head of a statue um, and then the sun shines down and then the flowers kind of make a crown or wreath on the thing's head and they say, look, there is some beauty even here. Um, but I, I agree. I think I would have preferred that much more here um, with everything going on with the window on the West and just kind of generally 
just every <laughs> I would prefer it to be kind of centered here as opposed to one throwaway scene in the extended edition. Yeah, because I think there's also like I, I think it has this kind of knock on effect on on characterization generally. Right. Because like, um, you know, there there's there's Gollum as this awful creature who seems kind of anathema to nature and in the dark and damp and dripping cave. And I know he doesn't really spend any time kind of in here, but like Gollum feels a piece with the set. Um, he feels like he belongs in this kind of shitty cave because it's like the shitty cave that we saw him in. Um, and and um, and Boromir, um, Boromir becomes, I think, vastly more sympathetic when you see the shittiness of Gondor in the movies because it's like, well, yeah, someone raised like this would be catastrophizing all of the time because his people suck. His dad's a cunt. Um, his brother's a train wreck who can't like tell his ass from his elbow, and and the whole world's falling apart around him. But I think in reality, the the Gondor that unfolds in the books and and the way that the the kind of tragedy of Boromir having fallen to the ring is, is magnified is. There was nothing inevitable about Boromir's fall, except in the kind of predestination way that, like, you know, he he was not ideologically correct. Uh, he was not ideologically and and sort of morally sound. So he was doomed to fail in that sense because he loved war too much. But like everything about Boromir's upbringing and everything about the world that we see that w- that belonged to Boromir before he went to Rivendell speaks of a world that did actually have some hope in it. And like, yes, the white tree is withered, but the white tree is still there. Um, and the Citadel still stands strong and Denethor himself still stands strong and Faramir still stands strong. Um, and, and so the fact that Boromir fell so far as to then believe that there is no hope and that, that, that sort of inevitable death and destruction, um, he just wanted to wield that death and destruction is all the more poignant. Whereas here you're kind of like, well, he didn't really have another way of thinking about life. There was no beauty in his life. There was no hope. There was no nothing. So it's sad that he died. But realistically, if you think about it, he's just another fucking cop statistic in in, in the FBI ledgers. It, he doesn't really matter, I guess. Um, and I feel like if they'd kind of just played up the beauty of it a bit more and, and kind of thought a little bit more seriously about why these things are described the way they are, I think there could have been that kind of emotional poignancy there. I hate the set dressing in this cave. I think it's real bad. I think it's real bad. Um, I don't have high, like, I don't have, I'm not expecting Versailles out of Hannah Thaddeen. Um, I will again say the Lord of the Rings Online has a great Hannah Thaddeen, and it's also very funny because that, like, it's quite small in the actual cave, which is fine. It's a video game. Um, <laughs> Faramir has this massive fucking bedroom with, like, a bearskin rug, and it's the most bougie, ridiculous, melodramatic thing ever. I think that handles it quite, quite well, and it does the kind of beautiful vistas, and it gets this sense of, like, this is a, a place of safety and security in an increasingly unsafe world, and this one just feels kind of like a dungeon from the legend of zelda like the random barrels all over the place the just shit that's stacked wherever um the falls don't feel beautiful as they do like menacing and kind of a bit annoying like a like back in the day kids we used to have these things called white noise machines before we had Mm -hmm. iphones with apps Um, and sometimes when those white noise machines would go on the fritz they just sound like shit um and this is kind of what the falls sound like to me and i think there's just this kind of like very little of the movies very little of these movies feels like they were done sort of last minute or just slapped together based off of the shit that they could find in a dumpster. Um, and so it always stands out to me when things do because because it's just not the norm for these films. Everything else is just done to 110%. Um, and this feels like it was kind of slapped together at the last moment, like, you know, Lisa's state costume in The Simpsons. Um, <laughs> and, and it just feels so out of kind of touch with the rest of the kind of creative capability and, and sort of direction of the rest of the movie that I'm like, oh, fuck, man, why? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I've defended the two towers from every criticism Emily has thrown at it, but at, I really got nothing on this scene. And I also know this is the one scene to let you have <laughs> to uh, complain about. But yeah, no, like compared to literally everything else, even Osgiliath, mm. um, like later in this film, feels a lot more majestic and something worth looking at in a way that the window on the yep. West doesn't. Um, so yeah, I feel like this is just one entire set of scenes where they kind of punted. Like, this is not something, and I will, you know, the only thing I will say in the film's defense is if you haven't read the books or don't know how to read, <laughs> um, I don't think you would necessarily see that there was something missing in these moments. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's the hardest thing to come back knowing what's in the text and be like, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> that's all we're doing here. Um, I think it definitely hurts. Yeah. Because I think that's like, there's a lot of choices that they make. Um, and maybe I'm not the best at kind of communicating this, but there's a lot of choices that they make that go, that kind of are, are like counterindicate like what, what's actually done in the books. But that like, ultimately, I don't really care. Like, not that I don't care about. I get why people get upset about it. But like, it doesn't, I don't, my opinion of the movies isn't necessarily lessened in any material way for it. Like the Treebeard stuff. I get the Treebeard stuff. I get the Treebeard angst. But I still quite like Treebeard in the movies. I think like he's a tactical marvel. Um, this is the kind of one where it feels inescapable because I think it's so in some ways it's this accidental culmination of a lot of the the kind of things that I think were wrong choices elsewhere in the films. And it kind of all just comes to a head here. And it's such a massive change to something that I think is so significant to the development of this endpoint, which is Gondor, um, that it's a bit like I could forgive but I can't forget. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I absolutely get that. Let's talk about Circus here. You know, that actor most famous for playing Kino Loy in Andor, a Star Wars series. He gets some of his absolute best stuff in the two towers here, flexing both his singing talents and then his going psycho talents. <laughs> The question of Gollum is one Faramir poses to Frodo early, but the Hobbit cleverly deflects the conversation elsewhere, eventually leading to Boromir. But Gollum unknowingly ventures into the Forbidden Pool and re-enters Faramir's crosshairs quite literally. <laughs> Forbidden Pool Gollum is perhaps the most likable Gollum, or should I say Smeagol, so far. He already got a huge dub in catching those rabbits for Sam and Frodo and telling his lesser half to bugger off before that. Here, he's having himself a nice little dip, getting all clean, and picking out some fresh seafood for dinner. This is probably as good as life gets for Gollum. Hell, he's singing and pounding fish, which is not a masturbation joke. <laughs> he's confused oh, no. at first by Frodo's approach. He knows something is a little off. But he trusts Frodo, the little guy who helped him get over his own little guy, so he follows behind in almost pitiful manner. The way he's on all fours with the fish hanging out of his mouth, he's like a dog with a bone. This betrayal sucks. You wouldn't kick a dog, would you? <laughs> Before we get into Circus's big monologue, I want to highlight just how good Gollum looks here on screen. His pale gray skin works great against the blues and blacks of nighttime Athelion, the water acting as a reflector to provide plenty of quote-unquote light. And Gollum himself looks great when wet. Little <laughs> drops are visible on his skin, and his hair is weighed down and sticking due to the water. It's those little flourishes that keep Gollum looking great 20 years later, 
visuals that merge the fantastical with how we expect basic things like water cohesion to work. Yeah, right. Like, I I know we did this all. We talked about this ad nauseum in the first part of one of the first episodes of the two towers. But like, I think it's worth coming back to and worth reiterating time and time again as we get further into the fucking content abyss, Um, which is that like Gollum doesn't look realistic, right? Like, I guess he kind of looks like those weird wombat motherfuckers. Maybe they're not wombats. Whatever. There's some weird Australian marsupial with massive eyes and they unsettle me. But like, he doesn't look like he doesn't look like a dog and he doesn't look like a cat except in his mannerisms. And 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 on paper, if you described the creature design for Gollum, nobody, I think, would be like, oh, yeah, that'll look great on screen. Um, but it's the things that, that that you point out there, right? Like, it is the, co- it is the fact that the water looks real and good dripping off of Gollum that sells it. And I, and I think it is kind of a lesson for creature design generally, but also just the use of CG in films and television, which is you can get away with a lot of kind of slightly off the beaten path design work as long as you get the basics down. And I feel like a lot of what we're seeing now is, you know, we've we've actually gone backwards in terms of skill for for like compositing and for um, light lighting work, not lighting design on set, but like lighting work within uh, within CGI. Um, and 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 that, I think, makes a lot of the kind of more fan quote unquote fantastical uh, graphics that we see uh, in movies now just feel like dog shit, even though if done right, they would probably be fine. Um, and I think this is just such like a manifesto for the power of 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 doing the 101 level course, getting the basics down, and then just going hog fucking wild with everything else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, let's get back to Circus, <laughs> who really shines after Faramir's men rough him up a bit. As a theatrical edition champion, I will say there is a lot less Gollum roughhousing than in the extended edition, which is another notch in my belt. Faramir tries to do an interrogation, but Gollum doesn't even seem to be hearing him. This is a great physical performance by Circus via motion capture, with his back to the camera, his body trembling from pain and betrayal. You can hear Smeagol sobbing before our good friend Gollum comes back to the fore. Why does it cry, Smeagol? As the darker half once again claims the reins. Circus is modulating between his two voices for Smeagol and Gollum effortlessly, with probably the smallest breaks in between the switches, aided by hiding the two faces of his persona. Usually you see the two sides talking to each other, like the earlier scene in Two Towers or the puddle scene from Return of the King. Once again, Circus is doing both a physical and voice performance together and separate, and the right balance is played as eventually it builds to the Gollum persona taking over in full. When Gollum pounds his fist on the ground and says, they stole it from us, the internal struggle is over. Faramir then asks again, and this time, without internal conflict, Gollum turns to his interrogator and yells, my precious, and then yells again for good measure, which I really love. Normalize screaming loudly in people's faces, but not like in the MAGA way. We've talked a lot about film Faramir already on this podcast, and specifically in our recent Faramir Eowyn episode, and we'll go even deeper into book Faramir next time when we do the book analog for the scene. But we can maybe talk to David Wenham's performance in these scenes and what the movie is attempting to do. Faramir's opening the scenes with the very for-the-audience map routine, laying out the enemy pincer attack. He name drops as Gilead, which is where the story will take us by the end of the film. I hate this. I hate this so much. I hated it before the Rings of Power came out. And um, I think this scene has the effect for me. Like, um, so I, I Weathertop in Fellowship of the Ring, right? Fellowship of the Ring, unimpeachable movie. I love 
all of it. Um, Weathertop, though, if you go back and watch Weathertop after really recently watching um, one of the any of the Hobbit films, you see some of that murky coloration coming in. It's not totally in effect in 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 the Weathertop shots, but you can see the kind of uh, seeds, the germs of where Peter Jackson will take what what Weathertop looks like, and then just blow it the fuck up in the Hobbit films and just make it look like shit. Um, and I feel like you kind of see here. Um, this kind of handholdy instinct of directors to be like um, they people our audience won't understand that the people of Middle Earth are terminally fucked if we don't see this pincer maneuver um, that's going on here um, and then you know you kind of watch the Rings of Power where they use a map uh, like people who have never seen a map before um, to to kind of handhold but just also do and say stupid things and, and build tension in dumb ways and I think this in particular drives me fucking nuts this scene um, not least because it's like i'm not just being nitpicky but like why the fuck is why, why does faramir care about rohan like why does he care these are not his people um uh, as as most of this movie has spent the bulk of its time telling us uh they these two kingdoms have no relationship to one another so why don't we care why doesn't it care but i also think it, it feels like a particular sting for me because it's using faramir to be an exposition dropper um but not in the way he is in the book and he's like the king of exposition in the book my man comes in and drops nine thousand words i've counted it it's nine thousand words of exposition and he goes through the historiography of middle earth the history of gondor the weird political tensions he makes an argument for the stewards over the kings and then immediately double crosses himself and says nevertheless the kings persisted and it's it's this this amazing moment um of the power of exposition in, in not just characterization but in world building and narrative tension in in building up the sort of um symbolic and 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 poetic sort of magnificence of a book like the lord of the rings and faramir is also an exposition drop in the movies and it's by pointing at a fucking map and i cannot tell you how much that feels like being hit in the tummy with one of those amazon pulled pork wolverine knuckle things okay well i think i'm gonna hit you with another amazon <laughs> pulled pork wolverine <laughs> What? I don't have you any idea claws, what you're talking about. The little claws that they they like put these up. If you look up anything that's like related to food, they'll be like, "What you need is these claws that you can use to pull apart pulled pork instead of just forks." I feel like oh, okay, yeah, okay, all right, whatever. Yeah, okay, yeah. I, for some reason, I thought you were talking about like the Wolverine equivalent of those giant green Hulk hands, where that people use as like beer koozies. But they do. Oh, um, I see I, what you're saying. Right? They're like but, they're like yeah. the just the knuckle part, but for pulled pork. It's I see. I got you. I got you. Um, so my very weak defense for this, I don't think it's anything great. You know, I don't think the films need it, but this is only, I think the second time we've looked at any kind of map yeah. of middle earth so far. Um, we see, uh, Gandalf pick up a map in, uh, Bilbo's house in Bag End, and that's mostly focused on the North cause it's mostly Easter egging like the lonely mountain mm -hmm. and smog and stuff on the map. Um, and then I don't think we get a map shot until, Return of the King after Aragorn's coronation. Um, oh, there's a little bit of map in Galadriel's prologue because I remember oh, yeah. Mordor turning to brown. But like I, because I again I tried to like get through the movies before starting to read the books. I actually had no idea what direction they were going <laughs> other than east. Okay, um, I had no idea they were going south. I had no idea where things were in relation to each other. Um, so at least 
I enjoyed the look at the map. I could do without the dialogue. Yeah. Um, what I would have probably preferred is maybe when Galadriel's yes. doing her big prologue thing, yeah. they should have just kind of included map shots into that just to give that same effect without having Faramir have to do this. And you can go right into the Frodo Sam interrogation stuff. Yeah. Um, I think that would have worked better. Because I also think it does this weird thing, right? If you have Galadriel doing it, like whether she's like, it's just kind of an overlay during her uh, monologue or whether she's like, you know, teacher style with her little pointer doing it and showing Elrond these key points. Um, it puts her in the driver's seat. And I think the biggest problem with Faramir the whole way through these movies is he's always playing second fiddle to whoever his little lieutenant is. Um, and they have his lieutenant explaining the political situation, the military situation to Faramir instead of Faramir explaining it to his second in command. And so it gives this random fucking guy the like the appearance of being in charge, even though Faramir is meant to be in charge because like Faramir is having basic parts of a map explained. Like I half expect this guy to be like, and this is the north. And this is the South. And like every single time they get a chance to like undermine Faramir's authority, they kind of do it until the only way he has to like impose his own authority is through like brute force, i.e. beating the shit out of Gollum. And I just wish they'd kind of thought about like what the power dynamics are of explaining things like literally the knowledge is power element of this um, to at least give Faramir some back some of his legitimacy and spine. <laughs> Oh, uh, we're delegitimizing Faramir here. That is exactly <laughs> what the goal of these movies were. He's not unkindly in his questioning of Sam and Frodo, though not as gentle as his book counterpart. He seems perceptive of all the subtle glances and shoulder crunches Sam and Frodo make, and when Frodo decides to lead the conversation away from Gollum and the ring. But the main thrust of this is Boromir, whose phantom haunts Faramir, it gives his film portrayal much of its pathos. It's on his mention that something turns in Wenham's performance, a slight sadness when he says, he was my brother, leading into a pensive dissociation later that evening. <laughs> For the unsullied audience, such as myself, it came off as thoughtful, but with the obvious danger the movie wanted you to feel about Boromir's kin. Yes, I, I think they should feel dangerous. I think these guys should feel really dangerous to you. Um, but I think they should feel dangerous in a different way to Boromir. Like, I think Boromir should feel dangerous because he could just, like, fucking pistol whip you at any point. Not even pistol whip you. He could pistol whip you with his fucking guns, which are his arms, right? Like, that dude is ripped. That dude is jacked. He could get out of a knife and take you to pieces. And that's his power. Like, like Boromir is the kind of brute strength. He is this sort of, like, uh, uncivilized kind of component of his family. Faramir and Denethor should scare you because they connect to something that is kind of greater than what us mere mortals are able to to kind of tap into. And and there is this sort of magic and 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 um not mysticism but but almost spiritual power, spiritual epicness to Faramir and Denethor. And that's how they raise the that's how Tolkien raises the tension um through this introduction of the the kind of other constituent parts of Boromir's family. And it's not just that they get like bigger and brawnier until Denethor is literally Arnie. Like it is that they add new and and kind of tragic elements to all of the things that Boromir was not. And they also by you know like Denethor um, Tolkien does this bad shit thing um, where Denethor is called uh, even more kingly and beautiful than even Aragorn uh, by Pippin and it's heavily implied that he is like um, mentally and sort of psychologically more powerful, possibly more powerful than Aragorn. And and Faramir is compared to Gandalf um, who, which is, uh, you know, head, head and shoulders above the Numenorians that is comparing him to to the the, the Maiar, the Estar, the Maiar uh, who are, you know, the, the angels on Earth. Um and 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 
it, all of this is kind of done not just for the sake of Tolkien being like Faramir is my self-insert so I'm gonna make him OP as fuck um it, it's to ask the important questions that I think is true of the book in general which is how have the choices that were made in the past impact us now and 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 Faramir's decision to not take up the call and ride to Imladris what would what if someone of this power um, had gone to Rivendell how could that have changed would Frodo have been living a more comfortable journey would this all have been over by now and and what if Denethor does not cede power by committing suicide what would that world look like in in which there is a power struggle between Denethor and, and Aragorn and, and those what ifs that are posed by the, the the, the sort of different but but no less significant power of um, of, uh, of Faramir rather and, and of Denethor I think is how the the narrative in the book heightens the tension and I think just going for the kind of raw strength and then the raw just being a dick uh, it doesn't quite do that tension for me in the same way. The Gollum stuff is where we see a harder edge with the film character, especially with that upshot at him looking coolly at Frodo after Gollum is taken. He's not especially gentle with him, and only seems interested insofar as Gollum has info for him. Dedra Miro, is that you? <laughs> I will give some props to performance here. Wenham's eyes as he's slowly piecing together Gollum's ramblings, that little bit of hunger rising, it's pretty good, but not over-the-top face acting. Before Faramir returns to Frodo, Sam tries to save his master. Use the ring, he says, the one thing that Sam has repeatedly kept Frodo from doing, like grabbing his hand in the dead marshes as the Nazgul flew overhead. But Frodo apologizes. It's his time to pensively dissociate. Sam had the right of it back before they stewed some conies. The ring is beginning to take him, as Galadriel made explicit to audiences a few scenes prior. If he uses the ring, Sauron will see him, find him, and it'll be done. I guess it's worth noting that The Two Towers is the only film of the three where Frodo, or anyone, doesn't put on the ring. Oh. Frodo last did it at the end of Fellowship of the Ring at Amon Hen, and won't again until the crack of doom. Plus, there's the Smeagol flashback to open Return of the King. The introduction of Gollum into Frodo's journey creates an externalization of the ring, posing all the same questions about the human heart without sacrificing their potency, possibly even enhancing it. Faramir is here now, sword in hand, backing the hobbits against the wall. He solved the $64,000 question, and he uses his blade to expose the ring hanging on Frodo's neck. Faramir eyes the ring, little mouth and eye twitches as he stares at it. There's some visual and tonal similarity to when Boromir picked up the ring on Karadras, the heavy emphasis on the chain, and one brother holding it by hand, and the other by sword, but I think they might have flipped who should have been doing which. Yeah! Amazing! Thank you! Alright, don't even gotta say it. Thank you. Agreed. Yeah, um... Not to highlight the red-letter media reviews of the prequels, but they talk about that uh, Obi-Wan-Anakin scene where they try to assassinate Padme with... Not they, but like uh, the bounty hunters try to assassinate Padme with the evil caterpillars, mm -hmm. and that it's Obi-Wan that jumps out the window instead of Anakin, who would probably be more on tilt yeah. after the assassination attempt. Um, I just think about that whenever I think about this. Is like I think they kind of switch these two characters up, which is really kind of funny when you think about it. Yeah, because because I also think there's something really interesting, right? And and this is not this is not entirely as not to say I'm not just using it to settle petty grudges, but I'm not entirely using this to settle petty grudges. But like <laughs> when you talk about like the when when you try and get people talking about the um the changes between book Faramir and movie Faramir. And um, one of the things they will say is, but isn't it so ridiculous that he rejected the ring? 
Um, isn't it so ridiculous that he was able to turn away from the ring? Isn't the ring the most powerful thing in the world? And shouldn't that have been incredibly difficult for him to have done, except at the point of death? Well, I don't necessarily agree with that as an interpretation of the ring, but it's what Boromir does. It is what Boromir does on Karathras, right? Like, Boromir is, of, of all of the characters that reject the ring, of Gandalf, of Galadriel, of Boromir, and of Aragorn. And Boromir is the only one to have it physically in his hand and to have enough of a physical distance between him and everyone else that he could have theoretically gotten a head start and also killed the shit out of anyone else. So his rejection of the ring in the movies, in some ways, is the more powerful and impressive one because he got so much closer to having it, literally, well, not even closer to having it, because he literally had it in his hands. And um, and so Faramir's, I would say, argue actually rather benign rejection of the ring in, in um, Henneth Annan, where it's obviously motivated more by him trying to get one over his dead brother than by any sort of an innate nobleness, nobility of his. Um, here feels all the lesser because he's he doesn't actually physically have it in his hand. He does not actually have his fist close the possibility of his fist closing around it. And so his rejection of it is you know, he's got the arm, an arm's length and a sword length away from him and some time to think about it. Um, and apparently this other guy, Mablung, I think they call him in the, the movies. Mablung is also a dude in the books, but I think they call him Mablung in the um, movies, you know, who seems a bit like him, kind of his surrogate dad who would probably put him in a corner to sit time out for a while. Like he's also there to kind of enforce some order on him. Um, and so the, his his kind of pseudo rejection here doesn't feel like enough of a rejection. And so instead of like taking Faramir's rejection, ostensibly preternatural rejection of um of of the ring in the books, which I should say, um, trying to tell people to fuck off and and be holier than that was the most powerful motivating force in the world. Uh, so it's totally understandable why Faramir did it in the books. But like taking it from that and being like, well, we have to even it out a little bit, and then accidentally making Boromir even more high, like high powered turbo powered is such a funny and weird way of handling it and I think it's a little bit like focusing too much on uh the ring as, as um like getting too ironically getting too enchanted by the power of the ring and not really thinking about what the ring is meant to do narratively the ring murmurs and Frodo gets a brief streak of defiance pushing away the blade there's a ferocity in Wood's delivery of, no, not quite Bilbo Goblin levels, but some real spunk in that kid, I tells ya. <laughs> Sam begs Faramir to let them go with tears in his eyes. Help us, because we have to do the impossible. Frodo fades away into the shadow of the background, his pale face barely visible behind Sam. One key change from the book to the movies that I promise I will not actually bitch about is where this scene falls in relation to the wider whole. In the Two Tower books, this actually kind of comes at the ass half of the book. It's in book four when we finally return to Sam and Frodo, and it's really part of the either, depending on how you look at it, the falling action of book four or the rising action of the overall uh, book itself, The Lord of the Rings, and the kind of grim, slow march towards quite literally, doom itself. In the movies, this literally comes after our intermission period. This is right in the heart of the movie, and this is the moment, narratively, where the conflict is really starting to boil. And for the first time, far from the rather, mm, let's call them provincial parochial 
tough exterior but nice soft interior appearance of the men of Rohan. Now we're getting to Gondor, and these are the hard-nosed guys who really, really pose a serious threat to not just Frodo's ability to get the ring to Mount Doom, but but also Aragorn's ability to claim the throne as rightful heir, allegedly, um, to the kingdom of Gondor. And I think this is really interesting because it totally changes how we have to think about this episode. Rather than using this as a moment for us to take a, a breather between the, the long slog through the dead marshes and the, frankly, horror that was Helm's Deep capping off uh, book three... Now this has to be the moment at which we build this tension. And and I think in some ways, and I promised at the top that I wouldn't bitch, so I'm not going to bitch, but it does kind of box our poor screenwriters whose job I do not envy into having to really, really build up the tension. And so while I don't want to rag on it too much more, I just think it's really interesting as we walk through uh, the next nine million hours of the Lord of the Rings books and um uh, rather movies and books um it's it's kind of helpful to think about structurally where these plot beats happen and what that does to the overall narrative and what things need to happen mechanically in this narrative so that we don't lose interest and turn off two hours before the actual end of the movie uh i'm not going to lie to you or the audience um my very first pass at the lord of the rings books i was very inclined to ki- skip some of the sam yeah. and frodo stuff yeah. um because i am just way more interested in kind of like the rohan side of things and then Hell the bigger yeah. war um so uh like book four was a bit of a struggle for me yeah. uh a little bit um so i generally it's it's a whole other conversation. I don't want to have it right now here, but I generally like how they moved like the Shelob stuff to be like a mid a, mid movie climax for Return of the King. Mm-hmm. I think it hits really well where it is. I probably would have reworked basically the last half of this movie in terms of the Frodo stuff. Um, I, I, honestly, at some point, I might just have Faramir capture them and just go straight to ask Gilead if they're not going to really put any effort into Window on the mm-hmm. West. Um, like maybe do something there. Maybe that's where Faramir holds like the trial or whatever, you know, the questioning of Frodo. Mm-hmm. And then like mid attack, they're attacked by the Nazgul or something. Yep. Um, I figured they viewed like the forbidden pool part with Gollum as the part that they couldn't cut. Um, <laughs> as opposed to anything with the Faramir uh, questioning Frodo stuff, which is kind of really funny to think about um, because I think J.R.R. Tolkien would take the opposite approach with that. Yeah, that, that's actually really interesting. Uh, I hadn't really thought about the, the kind of priorities there. I, you know what? Actually, now that you've said it like that, I feel like I kind of understand this scene now we have an understanding frodo baggins uh me to peter jackson <laughs> and, but if they are trying to flex how fucking cool Gollum is and how great andy circus is as Gollum, doing everything humanly possible to get as much Gollum screen time in and in weirder and increasingly funny not funny but like heartbreaking circumstances is a is a pretty decent argument for for these scenes i think you know if they'd gone through and, and been a little bit more heavy-handed get marsha lucas in to cut the hell out of this thing um and <laughs> just really chop the hell out of frodo and sam and faramir and and just put the spotlight on Gollum. i think i probably would have been happier with all of this uh in in quite a serious way and i know that's not at all the point of the books but like um it gets to something of the books which is aren't little freaks kind of interesting yeah, I think without a doubt, like Gollum has to be one of the like one or two biggest things about this movie. Like the selling point of the movie is like Gollum and Helmsteen. <laughs> I think like those are basically the reasons people like 
would love this movie. And I think both of those are executed well. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I'm okay with it kind of being focused on Gollum. It's just everything else. Um, and we've been kind of down on everything in these scenes on this episode. But Andy Serkis is just absolutely incredible in them. Um, I know we spent some time talking about him, but I can't stress enough that he is just absolutely incredible throughout this movie and almost everything he's in, which, you know, he's been in some stuff recently I've really enjoyed. <laughs> yeah. Um, won't say which. No, <laughs> no one could possibly guess. Um, although it does actually give me a chance to say, so So I, the audiobooks that I've not grew up, but the audiobooks I first listened to when I was first getting into The Lord of the Rings, a grand spanking three years ago, uh, were the audiobooks <laughs> by Rob Ingalls. Um, and he's like a proper kind of Tory cunt sounding old man, real BBC radio voice. And um, But the Andy Serkis audiobooks... Um, uh, are are phenomenal are really really great and like i i've always i always have respected andy circus as an actor i've never had any concerns about his ability to do anything but like audiobooks are a different kind of animal entirely um and 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 the way andy circus handles these audiobooks is just is just fucking fantastic um and if you've got i don't know uh six to 24 hours to spare at any point in your life i really recommend listening to them because it is a, a really interesting um not super radical but really interesting and nice and kind of comforting take on the books um and and good kind of bedtime listening material as well so before we sign off today we want to read the middle earth names of our ten dollar and five dollar patrons just as a reminder, we will read the Middle-Earth names of all our $10 patrons at the end of every episode, and on a rotating basis, we will read a couple of our $5 patrons. So, Emily, do you want to take this first one? Sure will. Thank you to Lothamana Pelinka, a.k.a. Johnny Flores Jr. Thanks to Ed the Revelator, a.k.a. Silent Spider, the Guardian of Kirith Ungol. And I Wendell, also known as Haley Glyphs. Aranwo Minyatar, a.k.a. Matthew Abbott. Idrenor of Kolkarthad, a.k.a. Maddie Hill. Salkwandil, a.k.a. Cam Lewis. <laughs> and Lakewood Melma, a.k.a. Zach Newman. <laughs> For our $5 patrons, I uh, want to shout out Lady B, a.k.a. Bronwyn, whose name is just Bronwyn. And Bathy Balor O'Gillery, a.k.a. Daniel from Sport. <laughs> uh, Daniel, if you ever want me to read your Middle Earth name, just holler, but I think I'm going to make Emily read it every time just because it cracks her shit so up so funny. much and it makes me super happy. <laughs> and that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycapmypod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod, where you'll get early access to episodes, special bonus content, and an exclusive monthly episode, uh, an exclusive episode every month. <laughs> I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASOIAF. And I've been Emily, also known as J.R. Tweedin, which is where you can find me on Twitter, which is where I will be painting a massive Looney Tunes style uh, tunnel on a wall to trap and kill movie Faramir. <laughs> uh, toasting a pint to our sound editor, uh, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. Ethreglier and Drethion, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember... I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.
You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon. Blah, 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 blah. That's completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I must have made this outline like a year ago. Uh.